The reason we want to talk to you today about NCE is because the early bird registration closes on, I think, uh, September 6th, so it's quite soon. So if you want to get into the cheaper rate, then you uh, need to register online and do it soon. So we want to make sure you can come uh, today by getting the cheaper rate. So that's why that's there in the outline. I do hope you can come along. Uh, interestingly, the, the big theme that's picked for NCE this year is being in Christ, exploring this key sort of Bible theme. And actually, it comes up in the very passage we're looking at today. So that wasn't uh, by design, uh, except maybe in God's hands, but that's just how it happens. So there you go, you're getting a bit of a leg up onto this topic in terms of looking at the Bible today. So as we come to look at uh, God's Word here in the Scriptures from Romans chapter 8, let me lead us in a prayer and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shone your light in the Lord Jesus into our lives and into our world. We thank you for the testimony about him that we have here in the uh, Christian scriptures, in your Bible. And we pray that as we uh, stop to think about it now, this one time, Lord, that you might grant us understanding from your spirit so we might understand these truths that you reveal to us. And more than that, Lord, we pray that in the power of your spirit that would transform the way we understand ourselves and the way we might live for you. To your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's great that you're here today and the question that uh, we're looking at, you can see on the board here, is spiritual life, what does it look like? Uh, over these three weeks, last week, this week, next week, we're looking at Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, these two chapters out of the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans, written in the 50-something AD to a bunch of Christians in these churches of Rome under the sort of heading of what is real spirituality. What does spiritual life look like? There's all sorts of conceptions out in our society about what spirituality looks like. Maybe you have some yourself. Maybe you think genuine spirituality must be deep. It must sort of go beyond just the, the visible. It must have some depth, doesn't it? The spiritual people, the people who walk around with sort of I know, they sort of sail around, don't they? They're deeply at peace or it goes just to the depth. So, is that what real spirituality looks like? <coughs> Deepness. Does it look soulful? Does it look esoteric, sort of separate from the day-to-day sort of normal life that the rest of us pledge with? Is real spirituality a status? Is real spirituality somewhat wacky? I mean, I was reminded again this week of Simeon, the stylite, who out of his devotion to Jesus sat on a pole for 40 plus years. A pole! He sat on a pillar for 40 plus years out of devotion to Jesus. Is this what spirituality, genuine, real spirituality looks like to somewhat wacky? In terms of uh, Christian spirituality, which is as Christians, we believe that the only spirituality that is genuine in terms of will really connect you to the divine is genuine spirituality interventionist. Is it about God intervening in what are clearly supernatural ways in your life? I was looking at a book uh, this morning, someone on me, and it, it, it said on the back cover something along the lines of, would you like a life where you have a, a friend who is always with you, who gives you expert advice on every question of life? The answer is the Holy Spirit. 
Is that what Christian spirituality is like? This sort of supernatural, interventionist experience. What is real spirituality like? That's what I want to talk about today. Now look at Romans chapter 8, the first 16 verses or so, because I think it has some helpful insights into this question. Now just to bring us back up to speed, last week, Romans chapter 7, was really a picture of spiritual death. This week, in chapter 8, as Paul continues his sort of line of reasoning, we get spiritual life. Last week was a picture of spirituality without the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a picture of spiritual death. And astoundingly, as we saw last week, it was, it was the Apostle Paul's description of life as an old covenant member of God's people. Life as a Jew, he described as bearing fruit for death if it's without the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was that? Just to remind you, he said, no, it's any spirituality outside of this new covenant spirituality in Christ by the Spirit bears fruit for death because outside of Christ and the power of His Spirit you are a slave to sin, you are in the flesh. That was the picture from Romans chapter 7. And Paul personified that experience in terms of what it was like for the nation of Israel as a whole, as generally true for all of those uh, in the nation of Israel, when he said things like, in chapter 7, verse uh, 22, he said, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. He is personifying this experience of life outside the New Covenant relationship with Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. It was a picture of spiritual death. But now he moves on into then what is spiritual life. So chapter 8 we're looking at, it would be great if you could open it up if you haven't already, or call it up on your iPhone, go to bible.gateway.com, you can get access to as many translations and as many ranges as you don't speak as you like. Call it up, have a look, share it with the person next to you because we're going to spend most of my time in the first four verses of this chapter. Now I'm going to skate very lightly over verses 5 through 16. So I want to in detail pull apart these first four verses today. So I hope you've got your thinking cap on. Here we go. Let me read from chapter 8 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, says Paul, right, so he's drawing a conclusion after painting a picture of spiritual death under the old covenant. Therefore, he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit that gives life to set you free from the law of sin and death. So, three things I want to draw out of this entire passage today. The first is, what is spiritual life? Real spirituality that gives life look like? The first thing is that it is in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation. Now, if you've been around Christian circles for a while, you've probably heard Romans chapter 8 verse 1 quoted all the time. In Christ Jesus there is no condemnation for those who are in him, right? In the context of chapters 7 and 8, what sort of condemnation is Paul talking about? He's not talking about condemnation at the final day of judgment, though. That's not what he's talking about. What's he talking about? What condemnation is he talking about? He's talking about the condemnation that comes 
from God's law. That's what he's talking about in chapter 7. He says, I know God's law, but I fail to do it. What a wretched man I am. That is, what condemnation I am facing as someone who doesn't do the very laws of God. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation from the law for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus? Well, his, his reason is in verse 2. He says there, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Okay, let's think in detail about this. It's one of those verses that usually we just sort of skate over, we don't really plumb the depths of we don't try and pull apart and actually understand it, but that's what I want us to do today. What laws is he talking about? He says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Are there two laws? You might think so. It sounds like there's two laws. He's not saying there's two laws. I think he's saying there's one law with two functions. One law with two functions. The one law is the old covenant law, the law of God. It's got two functions. The two functions were the law could bless you and a way to summarize the blessing is that you receive life through the law but the law could also condemn you. You come under the law's curse and a way of summarizing that is that you receive because of your disobedience to the law of death. The law had two functions. If you want to see this, flip with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Now do a bit of Bible flipping today because when we come to tricky parts of the Bible, the Bible illuminates itself if you actually draw together the different parts of the scriptures, right? So here, let's turn to Deuteronomy 30 and see what light it sheds on what Paul's saying in Romans 8. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 and following. So here we have uh, Moses, we're going way, way back in the history of the nation of Israel, Moses standing on the edge of the promised land with the, the nation of Israel, they've been wandering around the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience, and now they're standing on the edge of the promised land, about to cross over, Moses is reminding them of various truths in some very long sermons, which is what the book of Deuteronomy is. Verse 16, See, says Moses, I set before you today life and prosperity Death and destruction, right? Life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to grieve the Lord, then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you enter into the death. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day, you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing in the Jordan to enter into death. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so you and your children may live. See, the law always has two functions, to bless and to condemn. But keeping that in mind, what then is Paul saying in Romans chapter 8? He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. See, he's got a picture of two different types of people. 
If you take the entire world's population, not just now, but to all time, and if you want to make down to the planet, to all space, and you can put them into one of those pictures. Every single human being is either in the flesh or in the spirit by being in Christ Jesus. If you are in the flesh, as we talk in Romans chapter 7, you are a slave to sin. You're bearing fruit for death. If you are in Christ Jesus, then the law of the Spirit that brings life in you has set you free from the law of sin and death. Does that make sense to you? See what he's saying here? Paul is entirely, entirely working in the framework of Old Covenant and New Covenant. Right, which is the promises there in the Old Testament itself. Under the Old Covenant, the problem was national Israel as a nation failed to obey God. There were particular Israelites who did obey God. There was a faithful remnant. But as a nation, no. They did not all follow God. Because as a nation, they were in the flesh. They were slaves to sin. And the promise in that Old Testament was that one day God would establish a new covenant and he would write his law by the Spirit onto every single person's heart in the new people of God. Who's the new people of God? The church gathered around Jesus Christ. And you know what? There is no one who is in the church of Jesus Christ, that is, has genuine faith in Jesus, who does not have the Spirit. See, that's the difference. In national Israel, there were many who did not have the Spirit. In the church of Jesus Christ, but not those who go to church, but those who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ, there is not a single one without the Spirit. That's the new covenant, reality. He's saying, the law of the Spirit that produces life in you and set you free from the law of sin and death. Okay. That's what I think he's saying about two. The question still remains is, well, how exactly has God done this? How exactly has God moved us from being in flesh to being in Christ Jesus and in his Spirit? How but we have no condemnation now from the law. How, how does that work? I mean, think about God's law in the Old Testament. I mean, cattle is blue cord. I'm not wearing them. I'm eating my bacon. I'm having to work on Saturday. The Sabbath. Right? Doesn't the law therefore condemn me? So how am I saying I'm on this side? Well, Paul we'll goes into a bit more detail in verses 3 and 4. So, got the Bible there, let's have a look. Verse 3, what does he say? He explains what he says in verse 3. He starts with a 4, right? He's explaining to a 4 what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Okay, stop and think for a minute. What was the law powerless to do not in itself, but what was the law powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh? In fact, Romans chapter 7. What was the thing the law could do? The thing that the law could not do was confer life. The law was not able to confer life because we were in the flesh. But now, what the law couldn't do because it was weak by the flesh, God has done. 
God now says, well, how did God do that? Well, keep reading. What does Paul say? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful humanity and for sin so he condemns sin in human flesh. So here's the first part of Paul's answer. How, how have we been sort of set free from the condemnation of law? The first answer is because of the death of Jesus. Because God sent his own son, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, and that as our representative, as humanity's representative, he took the weight of the world's sin on his shoulders, and so sin, all of human sin, was rightly condemned, as the law said it should be. Because instead of you getting that, praise God for his mercy and grace, Jesus, your representative, God's own son. It wasn't that God said, you know what? This law is too hard. This law is too hard. No one can pass. No one can live up my dad. God is just. God is righteous. Sin deserves to be crushed because sin is terrible. And so it is crushed in the person of his own son. His son comes in the very likeness of sinful humanity. You know, my, my children do something bad. It's not right that I say, Lucy, who's our cat. <laughs> you suffer for them. <laughs> no, but you say that's not the right thing to do, right? That's not... No, no, no. You can't. Jesus came in the light, in the very likeness of humanity, so that he can truly represent us. He had to be one of us. And he takes the sin, and sin is rightly condemned. Well, praise God, that's amazing, right? All your sins, no matter how seemingly trivial in your mind's eye, no matter how glaringly gross in your heart, all human sin upon Jesus' shoulders as our representative and he takes the penalty for it. The great blessing of forgiveness in the Gospel. But you know, and you've got to quote me right here, Jesus' death for our sins is not enough. It's not enough, is it, that Jesus just died for our sins? Because if Jesus died for your sin, for my sin, that's fantastic, so I'm no longer under the condemnation of the law, except that if I'm still sitting in the flesh, I'm still at enmity with God. I'm still not wanting to obey him, as Paul goes on to say later in this chapter. So those in the flesh can't please God, won't please God, because they hate God. That's the reality if you're in the flesh. So you would never choose to trust Jesus as God's Messiah. If you hate God, if you're at enmity with God, you're not going to trust yourself to his Messiah, so your sins wouldn't be paid for anyone. Because you've never actually participated in the death of Christ by faith. So something else has to happen. Jesus' death is not enough. What's the other thing that happens? Verse 4. He finishes his picture. Verse 4. And so he condemns sin in human flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The difference, the second part of what God has done is poured out his spirit. 
He's given us that new heart that actually says, Thank you, Lord. I entrust myself to your son, Jesus. I want to live for you. <coughs> Jesus has taken the penalty for all your sins, and now he's gone to the Spirit in such that you want to live for him. That's the twofold for astounding transition that happens when you become a Christian. But Jesus objective death for you and God's subjective, if you like, work of the Spirit in you. And what does this Spirit do? It, it says in, before, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who walk according to the Spirit. Hang on, what's that? The righteous requirement of the law. Is that talking about the passion from the pork and the Saturday? I don't do those things. I have the Spirit. How, how have I... How has the righteous requirement of the law been fully met in me when I walk according to the Spirit? One of those places where, if you want to get the answer to that, you've got to bring, in, bring into the picture other truths that we know from God's Word to try to flesh out the picture. Exclusive the pun there. It's not really flesh out the picture, is it? Anyway. <laughs> what is clear? Okay, let's, let's answer that question. How do we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law by walking according to the Spirit? Three things. Three things you've got to pull together, I think. First of all, clearly, as new covenant believers in Jesus, we are not under the old covenant. We are not under the old covenant law. That's there in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, and you might belong to another. Or chapter 7, verse 6. But now, by dying to what one found, we've been released from the law, so we serve in the new age of Paul is very clear, you are no longer under the details of the old covenant law if you're in Christ. So yes, chapel, Sabbath, Saturday, Paul, you're not under the details of those laws. However, second point, that does not mean that you are just free to do whatever you like. Now Paul captures this beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. If you flip to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 and 21, 1 Corinthians 9, 20, 21, Paul says, To the Jews I became a Jew to, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. And here's the key phrase, So I myself am not under the law. So he's saying there, I know that in Christ Jesus I am not under the details of that law, but yet to, to win Jews, to faith in Jesus Christ, I'll, I'll happily sort of follow the, the details of the law, but I'm not obliged to. But then look what he says in verse 21. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. He's not entirely free to do whatever he will, he's under this thing Christ's law. So I'm not free of God, I'm under Christ's law. What is Christ's law that Paul's under? Well, at that point, I think, first thing, you need to flip back to Romans and go to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. I think here is where you get the answer to that question. What does it mean then to not be under the detail of the law but still be under Christ's law? And the answer is it's to be under the command for love. And Romans 13 verse 8 Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. 
where do we start this sort of excursus? Romans 8 verse 4 in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who walk according to the Spirit. What's the righteous requirement? I think it's the law to love. Love God, love others, or love neighbor. And I think Paul is being influenced here directly by the teaching of Jesus. So when Jesus was asked, you know, what, how do you summarize the law? What's one of the greatest six moments? That's his answer. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Paul's echoing that same teaching here. Whoever loves has fulfilled the law. So what you what Paul's saying is, by the power of God's Spirit, you are no longer at enmity with God. Instead, you have faith in his Messiah, Christ Jesus, and now you are able to fulfill the righteous of one law, which is to love God and to love others. You're free from the details. But you're now empowered by the Spirit to live for God. To love God and to love others. That's what I think he's saying here. So, to come all the way back to our first question, spiritual life, true spiritual life, what does it look like? It looks like being in Christ Jesus with life instead of condemnation. Now, I've spent a long time just on uh, that first point, and so I'm going to go incredibly quickly over the remaining bits. The second truth, I think, as we come to verses 5 to 13 of what spiritual life looks like, is it looks like being in the Spirit. In the Spirit. In verses 5 to 13, Paul doesn't really introduce a new point, he sort of fills out this basic picture that I've got here on the board in verses 1 and 4. And what he basically says is there is a very clear break between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. He says, if you're in the flesh, you can't please God, you won't please God, you're at enmity with God. <laughs> but those who are in the spirit have a mind that wants to please God, that wants to live for God. It doesn't mean that you will always obey Him perfectly, but it will mean that you care whether you obey him or not. Because when you fail to obey him, the work of the Spirit in you will produce repentance. Does that make sense? Right? So there's this clear break that he goes through. What, what, what spirituality looks like is this life in the Spirit. And as he uh, talks about this, he deals with a particular application in verse 12. He says there, So you are a debtor, not to the flesh. Then he reads this, chapter 8, Verse, uh, verse uh, 12, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have a debt. You are debtors, but not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Who here has a debt? Hetzbet? It's fascinating. As soon as you say Hetzbet, a few more hands go up. It's like Hetzbet isn't a real debt. It's true, isn't it? You say, God debt? No. Hex? Oh, yeah, a couple of thousand. <laughs> it's because when you think debt, don't think Hetzbet, right? Because Hetzbet is a debt that has no impact on your life. I mean, by choosing to go into Christian ministry, this wasn't the reason I chose to do it, by choosing to go into Christian ministry, I've never earned enough money to pay back my Hetzbet. <laughs> and I've been a wage and salary earner for a very long time. Right? It's not even the debt that really affects me. 
right? Where he says you're a debtor, you've got to think about a real debt. Like, think about something like a mortgage. Now, if you're stupid enough to take on a big whopping mortgage, right, that will be a chain around your life, won't it? Because you would never make a decision to say, be a missionary overseas because you've got a massive mortgage to pay and you have to give up the house and you won't do it. You won't say, I'm going to go as a teacher to some other part of Australia or rural where the, where the gospel is sort of rarely heard. You're not going to do anything radical with your life because you've got a mortgage. Right? It's, a, it's a debt that chains you. It constrains you. It shapes your life in every detail. Paul says here, you, if you're in Christ Jesus, if you're Christian, you are a debtor. You have a debt. A big, whopping debt. But you know what? It's like, for us as Christians, we don't know who we're in debt to. It's like we've got a massive mortgage and but we've actually, someone has already paid that mortgage for us, right? So the house is now ours. But we keep sending money to the bank. I'm in debt to the bank. No, you're not. You're not in debt to the bank. Someone's paid it. You're not in debt to the bank anymore. Oh no, I need to keep that. In our Christian life, he says, you are not a debtor to the flesh to keep walking according to the flesh. But so we, we treat us, even though clearly in Christ we're out here, we live our life like we're in debt to the flesh. I have to what can you do about sin? I mean, you know. What can I do? I mean, it's just, I was sitting there, in Manning, we were just gossiping. Like, it's just, oh, I know, it's just not I mean, it's just a relationship, you know, we went too far, and you know, just, I went too far, it's hard to put it back. I said, yeah, what can you do? So, you know, and I was just there, I was bored in the computer, and I just went to the website, like, what, what can you do? You know, it's just, it's just, that's thinking like you're a debtor to the flesh, like you're a, somehow you must live this way. He says, no, you're in the spirit. This is who you are. And so by the spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. The simple, the old flesh and simple way. I was sitting in Manchester, uh, in Rouse earlier this week, sitting on my long black, reading my Bible. The world is wonderful in moments like that, if you live in a little bubble, but anyway. And I'm watching the people in the gym working hard. <laughs> Where are you doing these things? <laughs> yeah. How hard we work to put to death the flab of the flesh. Isn't that right? We will punish our bodies to kill off how we look. In Christ Jesus, who cares about how you look spiritually? Are you more concerned with your physical appearance, the shape of this body, or are you concerned with your spiritual appearance? Paul says, you don't want to be spiritual. So what it is, he says, actually to be led by the Spirit, verse 14, because that comes straight after verse 13. What it is to be led by the Spirit is to live this life where you put to death the deeds of the body, the sinful deeds of the flesh. You put them to death. You work hard at it. You're not a debtor to the flesh. You're a debtor by invitation to the Spirit. Because look at what God has done in giving you life. You know what? 
You don't have to gossip. You don't have to indulge in impurity. You don't have to be grumpy with your family. You don't have to go to that site because in Christ Jesus you have the very spirit of the living God in you. And what it makes you spiritual is to put this death to the bottom. Now I've run out of time. And so next week I'll talk about this third thing. The third thing that looks like you're spiritual is to be a child of the one true heavenly father. Which made this the greatest blessing of all. And so we are more shocked that as we launch into the rest of chapter 8. So that's my point is too. What, what does it look like to be spiritual with it? Christ Jesus, Spirit, and Father. What do you notice? Trinitarian. To be spiritual is to be in relationship to the one true living God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. It means being in Christ Jesus by faith. It means being filled with his powerful spirit and it means being a child of your Heavenly Father. That's what it is to be spiritual. Now as we come to a rapid end, with there any time for a prayer? Do we have time for a prayer? What a stupid question. Of course we have time for a prayer. Our Lord and our God, we just praise you so much that we can call you Father. Thank you so much that we no longer have to obey the desires of the flesh, but that by your mercy you have called us grace into our hearts, that we might now be in with the Spirit, that you have poured out your Spirit into our hearts, that you regenerate our hearts to have new desires, that we might live for you, the one that we were made to live for. Thank you that you have freed us from fear, from all the unkind masters of sin, that you have freed us to be the people that you've called us to be as your church. Lord God, we just thank you that you have um, poured out your kindness on us, that you have led us to repentance, that you've led us to return to you, and God, we just pray that you will empower us by your spirit to keep in step with your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.